Father God, we come before you with humble hearts, knowing how awesome and truly great thou art. Father, I would just pray that each of us in here would fear fear the Lord, fear you with reverent, reverential fear, and that we would serve you in truth with all of our hearts, and that we would consider all the great things that you have done for us. Father, as we look at this lesson now and begin to discuss some of the responses to the birth, to the arrival of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would have the right response. There was the response of adoration and worship. There was this response of apathy, indifference. And there is, was also, as we so well know in this day and age, the response of agitation and um, even hatred, just outright hatred. But, Father, I would pray that everyone in this room would have the right response, the response that we will see this morning from Simeon and Anna, the response of adoration and worship. And now I just pray that you would hide me behind the Lord Jesus Christ. May he alone be exalted, for we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, in this lesson, which I have entitled Three Responses to Jesus, we're going to look at the events which followed the Lord's birth. And in doing so... Uh, as you heard me say, we are going to be looking at three actual responses that occurred among men and women to the arrival of the Lord Jesus, who even as a small infant, even as a small infant, he caused division among men. Now, in part one, entitled Fulfilling the Law, we're going to consider the circumcision of the Lord Jesus, which occurred on the eighth day of his life. And then we're going to be looking at the presentation of Jesus and the recognition of Jesus, which both occurred on the 40th day of his life. So he's still a small, small child. Now, as I said, next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at part two, the fulfilling um, fulfilling the prophets, and that should prove to be a rather exciting lesson. I hope today will be exciting too, but it doesn't seem... Um, quite as fascinating as the wise men. All right, let's begin by discussing the circumcision of Jesus. And for this, if you have your Bibles, would you open up to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. I'm just going to read for now verse 21, where it says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Other than the Lord's birth, his circumcision is the only other, uh, or I should say it's the earliest recorded event about him that we have in the Gospels. Now, circumcision was the, the first of three legal ordinances which were to occur after the birth of a male Jewish child. Mary and Joseph fulfilled the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, by having the Lord Jesus circumcised on what day of his life? The eighth day of his life. And um, I think I told you that there's a book by Dr. McMillan um, called uh, All These Diseases, I think is the name of it. I'm not sure if I had that in your notes. I think I did. Which said, has found, it, they didn't discover this until the 1940s. But, of course, it's in God's Word all the way back in Genesis 17. But in the 1940s, scientists or med the medical field people discovered that the eighth day of a child's life is absolutely the best day for um, surgery such as circumcision because that's the best day for the blood clotting and for um, infec infection, you know, the, the bacteria that fight infections. 
So it's amazing, you know, science took all those many, many years to discover what God had told us way, way long ago through Moses. So on the eighth day, he would be circumcised. And he would be, um, by, by doing this, um, he would be identified with the covenant that God, of course, had given to Abraham back in Genesis 17. You know, he told Abraham to circumcise Isaac on the eighth day, and then Abraham was to circumcise all the male, including himself, which can you imagine? Ooh, he was pretty old at that time. Had to circumcise himself and then all the other men in his whole entire household. God told him that uh, actually if an individual from the lineage of Abraham was not circumcised, he was to be cut off from his people because it would signify a willful breaking with God's covenant. So by fulfilling this law, Jesus was therefore made eligible to fulfill the promises that God had pledged to Abraham. And by the way, um, speaking of circumcision, you know, it is, of course, the cutting away of the foreskin of the, the male reproductive organ. I never did tell you that. I assumed you all knew that. I don't know why they don't do it on the eighth day now. It seems like they should, but they do it immediately, don't they? They do it, I remember with my son, is it the first day or the second day? I mean, it's right away. But um, in Christianity, the sign has uh, has been given a spiritual significance. Of course, even back in Abraham's day, the cutting away was like the cutting away of sin is what it was supposed to represent. It was really um, a physical thing which was supposed to represent a spiritual truth. In Christianity, it tells us in Colossians 2.11, this sign of circumcision, of course, um, as as females, we're not circumcised, of course, and and, and Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. I guess they've proven it's more healthy. But um, uh, we are to have a circumcised heart, right? Physical circumcision was putting off a part of the, the flesh Whereas spiritual circumcision is putting off the entire body of the flesh, which is accomplished through, of course, the work of Christ. This is what it says in Colossians 2.11. It says, In whom, speaking of Christ, also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of sin, of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So today we are circumcised, um, spiritually speaking, when we cut ourselves off from the the body of flesh when we're born again and we're no longer um, in bondage to our flesh. Now, J.C. Riles, in his commentary, which is an expository thoughts on the gospel, he says this, and this is in your notes. He says, Our Lord's circumcision was a public testimony to Israel that according to the flesh he was a Jew made of a Jewish woman and made under the law. Without it, in other words, if he had not been circumcised, he would not have fulfilled the law's requirement. Without it, he could not have been recognized as the son of David and the seed of Abraham. Circumcision was absolutely necessary before our Lord could be heard as a teacher in Israel. Without it, he would have had no place in any lawful Jewish assembly and no right to any Jewish ordinance. Without it, he would have been regarded by all Jews as nothing better than an uncircumcised Gentile and an apostate from the faith of the fathers. So it was very important that Jesus, humanly speaking, was circumcised, or he would not have been, um, he, no one would have followed him in Israel. No one, absolutely. Now, it was on the occasion of his circumcision that a young 
Jewish infant, and we discussed this when we talked about the circumcision of John the Baptist. It was on at this time of the circumcision ceremony that the young Jewish male received his name. And uh, it was you, we talked about how it was usually pronounced in the midst of the ceremony, you know, when the, when the rabbi, right, um, right, was it after, right after he did the surgery? Then he said a, a prayer, and in that prayer, he would look at the father, and the father was to give the name of the son. Um, however, as was true in the case of John the Baptist, God had already ordained what his son's name would be, and he had revealed that name to both Mary and Joseph by way of his angelic messenger, Gabriel. And what did he say that name was to be? Jesus. The name Jesus, which literally means Jehovah saves, or basically it means basically Savior. Now, it's interesting to consider the fact that on the very first day that the Lord Jesus was officially named Jesus, Savior, he shed blood in obedience to his Father's will. Did you ever realize that both the first event of the Lord's life, which was his circumcision, and the last event of his life, which was his crucifixion, both were sealed with his own obedient, precious, soul-saving blood. Did you ever think about that? Both were done in obedience to his Father's will, even though neither one of them in his unique situation was necessary. Because he was sinless, he really didn't need to be circumcised. He didn't need to have the flesh cut off because he was sinless. Of course, we know neither did he need to die because he was sinless. He did it for us. So that's, I thought that was an interesting comparison there with the first event of his life and the last event of his life, both involved the shedding of his precious sinless blood. Okay, that's all I'm going to say right now about the circumcision. Let's look at the presentation of Jesus. And for this, we'll look at verses 22 to 24. And when the days of her, speaking of Mary... The days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All right, here we have the record of the Lord's first visit to the temple, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know where they had the circumcision, where it took place. They may have gone to Jerusalem because, remember, they're living in Bethlehem now. They had gone there for the census. Baby Jesus was born there. They have not traveled back to Nazareth. They stayed in Bethlehem. So they might have had the circumcision actually done there in Bethlehem. But now probably that's what they did because they would have rabbis in Bethlehem. And now for the first time they take the Lord Jesus uh, 32 days later, so he's 40 days old now, they take him on his first trip into Jerusalem, his first trip to the temple. And that kind of stands in contrast to the, the first early dramatic account of John the Baptist because in John the Baptist's situation, we went out from the temple. When we were talking about all the early days of John the Baptist, it started in the temple. Remember when his father, Zacharias, was in the temple and, the, and Gabriel arrived to him? So all the events of, of John take us starting at the temple and then working out from the temple because he, he was not 
whatever, wherever they circumcised him, it went out from there because he lived over in Hebron. Whereas with the Lord Jesus, the early events of his life start in Nazareth and they go to Bethlehem and then they work toward the temple. So you just see the difference there. I always like to point out contrast, comparisons and contrast. Now this passage that I just read contains the next two legal ordinances which the Lord's parents, Mary and Joseph, performed in order to satisfy the Mosaic law. That's why this part of our outline is called fulfilling the law. And these two ordinances, you know, first of all, we had circumcision. And now the next two were the ritual cleansing of the mother. After the birth of, the, of her newborn child, the mother had to be cleaned, cleansed, purified. And they went through this ceremony. And then secondly is what was called the ritual of redeeming the firstborn son from priestly service. And both of these events, as I said, took place 32 days after his circumcision. If his circumcision occurred on the eighth day, this means that both of these events occurred on the 40th day of the Lord's life. His first visit to the temple was when he was 40 days old. Now let's look, if you don't mind, flipping over into the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. It's uh, the third book in the Bible. And if you would look at chapter 12, I want to read verses 1 to 8 for you. Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 8. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman have conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days, according to the days of the separation for her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be cir circumcised. That's the circumcision on the eighth day for the male boy child. And she then, she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. See, she was unclean for seven, and then you add another thirty-three, so she's unclean, considered unclean for a total of forty days. She shall touch no hallowed or sacred thing, nor come into the sanctuary, can't go into the temple, until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a maid child, in other words, if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. In other words, that totals up 80 days she will be considered unclean. Now, go figure. I don't know why. <laughs> if she has a boy child, she's unclean for 40 days. If she has a girl child, she's unclean for 80 days. I don't know why that is, but there's a reason, I'm sure. Well, I know there's a reason, because this is God's law. Okay. And verse 6, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year, a one-year-old lamb, for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation under the priest. Now, this is when they had a tabernacle before they had a temple. Okay. Verse 7, Who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood? This is the law for her that hath borne a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles, meaning not, not crawling turtles, but turtle doves, or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Okay, now you can go back um, over to... Luke chapter 2. All right, then here's what we learned reading that. 
the, the Jewish mother of a newborn child was considered ceremonially unclean or defiled by the birth process for a total of how many days if it was a boy child? 40. How many days if it was a girl child? 80. Now, prior, what we just read is prior to her purification after childbirth, a mother was not allowed to take, touch anything hallowed or sacred. And she was not allowed to go to the ta tabernacle, or in our days, in, in um, the New Testament, she was not allowed to go into the temple. Um, but provision is given for both her cleansing and her restoration to full fellowship with her family and, and with her community and with her, her, her temple worship. And um, that requirement was to bring a burnt offering and a sin offering to the, to the temple. And the proper burnt offering was, who remembers, what was it to be? The burnt offering, right, a one-year-old lamb. And the proper sin offering was to be either a young turtle dove or a pigeon, all right? And so, you see what all this means, that they would sacrifice the lamb for the burnt offering, of course, and the pigeon or the, or the turtle dove, dove for the the sin offering, what this meant was that it was the shedding of blood which removed her uncleanness. It's always all throughout the Bible, the shedding of blood. You can't get away from the blood and, you know, believe in the Christian faith. There's shedding of blood. It's a, the scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible. Now, it must be said that in the special case of Mary, <clears throat> this purification was not divinely necessary. The angel Gabriel had already declared that everything about her supernatural conception was holy. Remember how we talked about that? And the child within her, he said, was also holy, that holy thing. That's in chapter 1, verse 35. If she was not permitted to touch anything sacred or hallowed for a total of 40 days after giving birth to the Lord Jesus, then when you think about it, she had already violated that law. She had violated that requirement the minute she took that sacred child into her arms and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, right? Because who could be more holy than the Lord himself? And if she was not permitted to enter the temple for to a total of 40 days, then God would not have permitted her to hold the very temple of God in her arms and rock him to sleep. Because remember what he said, he, who he said he is, when he told them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. Jesus Christ was the very temple of God. And uh, so we see that in her unique situation, being purified and going through this uh, ritual 40 days after the birth of Jesus was not really necessary. However... <clears throat> Mary's purification served as a wonderful opportunity for bringing the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem in order to present him to the Lord. Uh, just as his circumcision, although divinely unnecessary in his unique case because he was born sinless, but yet it served as an opportunity to obey God by publicly naming him Jesus, you know, as God had commanded through his messenger, and, of course, to identify him, humanly speaking, with both the Abrahamic covenant 
and with the people of Israel. You know, like I said, without having been circumcised, would the Jewish people have ever followed Jesus? No way. Because God had said if if a descendant of Abraham is not circumcised, he is to be cut off from his people. Even his disciples would not have followed him. They would have considered him a pagan. An uncircumcised Gentile is what they would have called him. So even though, you know, technically, divinely, he didn't need to do these things, he did. um, Because he came not to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. So although both the purification of Mary and the circumcision of Jesus were not divinely necessary because of their very unique, unusual circumstances regarding the holiness of both his conception and his very person, yet as we're going to see throughout our entire study of the life of Christ, he always, um, everything he did, he did according to the Mosaic law. And he made that very clear. You know, there were many things he did that he did not have to do because of who he is. He's the one who wrote the Mosaic Law, (laughs) and yet he fulfilled the law um, so that nobody would stumble. And that's what he did make clear when he said in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And fulfill them he did, right down to the very detail. Now, for those, you know, as we read Leviticus 12, We learned that for those who were too poor to afford the lamb and the young pigeon, they were supposed to bring both, the lamb and a pigeon or the lamb and a turtle dove, for the purification of the woman, allowance was made to instead bring two turtle doves. And so instead of the lamb, they could bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Because lambs were pretty expensive, and if you were poor, you couldn't really afford one. And because this was the humble offering which Mary brought for her cleansing, as according to, um, that's what's implied in Luke 2.24, therefore scholars tell us that both Joseph and Mary were poor. They did not have a lot. They were, they were considered poor. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that they, even though they couldn't afford to bring the lamb, they did bring the lamb, did they not? They brought the most expensive (laughs) lamb that anyone could ever imagine. They brought the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. After the cleansing ritual, the Jewish mother of a firstborn son could then participate, because she'd been made clean, okay, so then she could participate in the next ritual, which involved the redemption of that firstborn son from the priesthood. So let's look now, if you'll go back, please, to Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 13, and look with me at verse 2. I can't believe I turned right to it. That's amazing. Didn't even have a marker there. Exodus 13, 2. Let me read what that says. It says, uh, Sanctify, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, Sanctify or set apart unto me all the firstborn. Whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. Now, if you'll go over to Numbers and look with me at chapter 18. Let me read verses 15 and 16. Numbers 18, verse 15. says, Everything that openeth the matrix 
in all flesh, opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or beasts, shall be thine, the Lord's. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shalt thou surely redeem, and the firstling of unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. And those who and those that are to be redeemed from a month old shalt thou redeem according to thine estimation for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary which is twenty geras alright now go back to Luke chapter 2 when the Israelites under Moses you know in the exodus when they left Egypt the Lord God made a claim upon the firstborn of every Israelite boy child. Now remember, he'd saved the lives of all the firstborns when the, he told them to um, shed the blood, kill a, a lamb, and take the lamb's blood and put it on the doorposts of their house. And then the angel of death would pass over and spare the firstborn child of every house that had the blood on the door. Even if any of the Egyptians, the Gentiles, were willing to do that, the angel of death would pass over their house as well, and the firstborn would be spared. Now, the, the Lord God said, because I've spared the firstborns, they are to be mine. They're to be dedicated to me. A firstborn son was to become a priest unto the Lord. But what happened later on in Israel's history, when Israel became so depraved because she kept turning to other gods... Uh, God singled out just one particular tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel. He picked out one tribe. He picked out the tribe of uh, Levi. And that particular tribe was to become his priesthood. And you can read about all of that in, um, let's see, where is it? Numbers chapter 3. We won't go back there. But instead of um, the firstborns of every Jewish tribe, family, he was now going to have the tribe of Levi. Those men were to serve as his priests. And the reason for that is because you remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he saw that they had built a golden calf and he was furious and he broke the tablets and he was so mad and, and uh, then they, they had this big thing and he said, well, who's going to be on the Lord's side? Well, the first ones to come over and stand on the Lord's side were the Levites. And so they redeemed themselves, and God said, they will be my priests, okay? Now, as a result of choosing the Levitical priesthood, every firstborn son from all of the other tribes of Israel needed to be redeemed, or he needed to be freed from that former obligation to serve in the priesthood of God. So you see what I'm saying? Are you following me? Now that the Levites were going to be his priests, if you were a firstborn son from, let's say, the tribe of Reuben, you needed to be redeemed from serving in the priesthood. Now, according to Numbers 18, verses 15 to 16, which we read, five shekels of silver had to be paid by the child's parents as the redemption price needed to free their firstborn son from the priesthood obligation. But what's interesting in Christ's situation here is that there is no mention in the scripture that Mary and Joseph ever paid those five shekels of silver to redeem their son Jesus from the priesthood. Perhaps they did, you know, but perhaps they did not. 
it's it's strange that the turtle doves and pigeons are mentioned in the scripture, but there's no uh, mention of the shekels for the firstborn redemption. It's interesting to consider the possibility that maybe they did not pay those five shekels to redeem Jesus from um, his obligation as the firstborn son to be in the priesthood of God. Jesus, you know, is the great high priest who intercedes, you know, to God on behalf of those who are his. So it could be, I can't be dogmatic about this, but it could be that at 40 days after his birth, when he was presented for the first time in the earthly temple, that he entered into his priestly role for the nation of Israel. At 40 days. I have that up there so you can digest all this. That's a very strong possibility. What we do know is that 40 days after his resurrection, you know, his glorified birth, we could call it, when he arose from the dead with a glorified body, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended into the heavenly temple where he did begin his priestly work on behalf of his church. So it's very possible that Mary and Joseph, who were poor, not really knowing what they were doing, I don't think they were attuned to all of this significance, but it's very possible that they did not take him to be redeemed because maybe they couldn't afford the five shekels of silver and that he was not redeemed so that at 40 days of life after birth, he began his priestly work on behalf of Israel. Forty days after his resurrection, his new birth, we could call it his glorified birth, he did begin his priestly role for the church. So, again, a really interesting thing to think about. It's also interesting to think how the Lord's presentation in the temple on his 40th day of life went essentially unnoticed and unrecognized by all the priests who must have been there, you know, busily tending to all the various temple duties. It said, you know, on any given day of the week, there were at least 50 priests in the temple because it was, it's a, it was such a busy place. It wasn't like, you know, churches here that are basically empty during the week. There, all kinds of things were always going on. And yet none of them, none of all those priests paid any attention to the very one who was going to permanently terminate their jobs. <laughs> Think about that. Jesus Christ, the great high priest of God Almighty, was both the fulfillment of all that the Aaronic high priest foreshadowed, because the high priests were to come from the line of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So he, he not only um, was the fulfillment of everything that the Aaronic high priesthood stood for and foreshadowed, but he was the fulfillment of all that the firstborn dedication foreshadowed. He would be the end of the need for all human priests. Because after his sacrificial death, you know, as the Lamb of God, there would be no more need for sacrifices. And there would be no more need for priests or presentations of firstborns to be redeemed from the priesthood. His death would make it possible for all believers in him to what? go boldly before the throne of grace, march right into that holy of holies, and present our own petitions to God. We didn't have to go, we don't have to go with the sacrifice. We don't have to go um, to a priest who intercedes on our behalf. 
Well, you know, the veil was torn from top to bottom so that you and I can go right into the Holy of Holies and present our petitions right before God. In fact, each of us is part of the priesthood now, right? It says in 1 Peter 2, 9 that we are a royal priesthood. And he alone, Jesus Christ, serves at, as the great high priest. He's the great high priest. So here, just picture this. He's 40 days old. He's just a cute little infant baby. His parents bring him into the temple. All these priests are busy doing their thing, you know, sacrificing the lambs and doing all that. And nobody pays any attention to him. And he's the one who's going to do away with their jobs. Interesting, isn't it? It's really, it's a sad commentary on the spiritual status of the priesthood of Israel at the time of Jesus Christ that none of them... None of them had spiritual eyes to behold the identity of the little Christ child, but that the testimony of who he is, who he was, his person, had to come from elsewhere, outside of the religious establishment of that day. The recognition of Jesus Christ, those who had spiritual eyes to see who he was, came from a godly old man and a godly old woman both members of the remnant of true believers the Lord has in every single generation. Does he have a remnant in every generation? Yes. Even among his own people, the Jews. And so we're going to look next at the recognition. Let me put the outline back up. We've looked at the circumcision of Jesus and the presentation of Jesus. Let's move on now and look at the recognition of Jesus. And for this, uh, well... Hold on a minute. I'll, I'm going to read in just a second. I'm not going to read it yet. When Mary, while Mary and Joseph were in the temple with 40-day-old little baby Jesus, two godly people, one a man and one a woman, gave testimony as to the messianic identity of the small son of Mary. Both of these people had been long looking for the fulfillment of the messianic promises of God. And the man is described for us in Matthew. You do have to... Uh, oops, no, not Matthew. I guess we're still in Luke. Okay. In Luke 2, 25, I'll read that in just a minute, but he is described as being both just and devout. And it's interesting. Just, he's, he's described as just and devout. Just speaks of his relationship with other men. In his relationship with other people, he was just. Devout speaks of his relationship with God. In his relationship with God, he was, uh, he was righteous. So I thought that was interesting to point out. Now, the Holy Spirit had somehow revealed to this old man, we, we know, I'm sure you know by now that his name is Simeon, that he would not see death, he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or anointed one. Christ means the Lord's anointed one. He knew he would not die before he had seen his Savior, the Messiah. And... Uh, I want to point out, because you probably have heard over the years, that he was a priest. Simeon was a priest. However, that is totally speculation. There is no mention in the scripture that Simeon was a priest. None whatsoever. Just a godly man who would come regularly to the temple in order to worship the Lord. So let's look at this man named Simeon, verses 25 to 35 of Luke chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, I believe if he was a priest, it would have said there was a priest in Jerusalem. But he's just a man whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Like other godly Jews of his day, Simeon had been waiting, if you'll see in verse um, 25, he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the word consolation there is interesting because it's the same Greek word that we get for the Holy Spirit being the comforter, the paraclete, it's the same word. It means the comfort or the one who comes alongside of. What he was waiting for was, this is a, a, another term, you know, we've had a horn of salvation. We've had some different names for the Messiah. This is another term for the Messiah. And it's interesting that the Lord Jesus is spoken of in the same terms as the Holy Spirit. That's not unusual because they're both divine. They're both deity. Now, Jesus would be the one who would come alongside of Israel. He, he would be her comfort. It was a very fitting term for Jesus Christ. There was, I told you this before, at the time of the Lord's birth, there was a general air of expectation among the truly spiritual people, the remnant, that the coming of the Messiah was to be soon. Even though there had been 400 years of silence from heaven, there was just this atmosphere that they knew something was about to happen. A common, so a common Jewish prayer at that time uh, was, Lord, may I see the consolation of Israel, you know, before I die. Like our prayer, my prayer all the time, I hope it's yours, is, Lord, may I see your return to the rapture before I die. I don't really want to die. Do you want to die? I, I don't look forward to dying. I'd rather be taken up in a second. Uh, so, so Simeon had obviously been praying this prayer, and so, this man really walked closely to the Lord. I mean, he, he, the, the Holy Spirit talked to him. He was led to the temple that day, the exact day that Jesus was going to be there. The, the Holy Spirit spoke through him. I mean, here was a Spirit-filled man. And somehow or another, the Holy Spirit had divinely assured him that his prayer would be answered, that he would have the privilege of seeing the consolation of Israel. He would have the privilege of seeing the Messiah before his death. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us Simeon's age, but from the context, we know that he was old because he was waiting to die. The uninspired gospel of the nativity, it's called, which is found in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are some books that um, have been placed between Malachi and Matthew, we do not believe as Protestants that they are divinely inspired. So I can't use this as proof of his age. But they have one book in there called The Gospel of the Nativity, which says that he was 113 years of age. Whether he was or wasn't, I don't know. I do know that he was old 
very old. Now, on the day Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to the temple for the first time, Simeon, as I said, by a special prompting of the Holy Spirit, was also there. I'm sure he went there often, but this this was not a coincidence. He was there. He was led there that day by um, the Holy Spirit. And when Simeon, when his eyes happened to look over and see this child, this special child in Mary. Now, other people were there, and nobody else saw him as being anything special. But when Simeon beheld the child Jesus, he must have been suddenly moved and filled with the Holy Spirit. I compare it to when John the Baptist, inside of his mother's womb, heard Mary's voice for the first time. He, he jumped with, he leapt within the womb. Well, Something similar happened with Simeon because as soon as his eyes beheld the the baby Jesus, he knew who he was. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Now, not yet aware of what was going on, but noticing this unusual interest in her son, Mary, who was also spirit-filled. She was a godly young woman. She noticed something special going on with this old man and the way he was looking at her son. And so she just handed over her son to him. It must have been just a precious moment. She handed her son into his arms. And what did he do? What's the first thing he did? It says in verse 28, he blessed God. So in this scene, right away at the very beginning of Simeon holding the baby Jesus and praising God, we have a beautiful example of the working within the triune Godhead. Because what we have here is Simeon being led by the Holy Spirit of God to know the Son of God. And he knew the Son of God with uh, spiritual eyes. And as soon as he recognized and understood and knew who the Son of God was, the first thing he did was praise God the Father. And that's exactly how the, the triune Godhead works with us. It's the Holy Spirit of God who enables us to recognize the Son of God by using the Word, the Scripture. We also have spiritual eyes to behold and see who He really is. And then our reaction is to be what? Same as Simeon's, that we praise God. So that's neat too. All right, Simeon made some amazing prophetic proclamations here concerning baby Jesus. And because it was a response of adoration and worship, remember I said we're going to be looking at different responses to Jesus. This is the, this is the right response out of all of them. This is the response of adoration and worship. We're going to see the response of apathy. Actually, we already have because the priests all over the place and the other people in the temple were apathetic to Jesus. They could care less who he was. They just went about their daily business. And then we're going to also see agitation when we look at Herod and what went on there. But um, this was the right response. This is the response of adoration and worship. Simeon's spirit-inspired words, which I read to you, is the last song of praise that we find in Luke chapter uh, chapters 1 and 2. And we've looked at, this is the fifth. Remember, five is the number of grace. There have been five songs of praise in Luke's, Luke chapter 1 and 2. The first one was spoken by Elizabeth, remember? And it was called the Beatitude. The second one was by Mary, and what was it called? Everybody tell me. Mary. Right, the Magnificat. Then there was the one spoken by uh, Zacharias, which was called the Benedict. Right. And then there was the one spoken by the heavenly angels, which was called Gloria Excelsis. 
And now we have the fifth one, Song of Praise, and it is spoken by Simeon, and it is called the Nunc. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. If you took Latin, you can help me out. Nunc Dimitis, or Dimitis, or something like that. Um, it comes from the two words, now depart. You know where he said, Lord, now, that's Nunc, lettest thou thy servant depart, is Dimitis. In peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Uh, his words here tell us about one who did not fear death. This is wonderful to see. He didn't fear the grave. He was no longer tempted by the charms of this world. Uh, the, these are words of one who knew with assurance where he was going and why he could go there. He believed in a Savior, and now his eyes had actually seen that Savior. And he wanted to depart this world. He knew where he was going was far better. So in effect, what he was saying is, Lord, now let me depart. You know, I want to go on, and I want to be with you. I've finally seen this one who is my salvation, as you promised me, and now I'm ready to go. Isn't that a wonderful attitude? That's the way that uh, it should be. One of the, the, the greatest things about being a Christian is the fact that we don't need to fear the grave because our Lord's victory over death has removed the sting from death. And it's removed the victory over the grave, right? I mean, you know even one day all the, the bodies of the, those that belong to the Lord are going to be resurrected and glorified. So even you don't have to worry. I think about this sometimes with my son being a fighter pilot. Even if he's blown to bits, God is going to put his, him back together totally one day in a glorified body. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying he's not blown to bits. and I don't want him to ever be blown to bits, but I'm just saying, you know, you hear about all these bombings and horrible things going on. And, but, but the Lord is going to undo all that. And it's just marvelous that we don't need to, to worry about death. It's actually, you know, Paul says it's far better to go on and to be with him. And, you know, absent from the body and present with the Lord. So Simeon, we see here, has a desire to go on now. He had been God's watchman. Actually, the word watchman is used about him, and I don't remember which word it was, but I read that, that he was a watchman um, for the Lord's coming. And now he had fulfilled his job, and he, he was ready to go on. Now, in verse 32, he quoted from Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6, when he declared that Jesus was to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And we talked about this last time, too. The Gentiles, of course, had sat in darkness and uh, in the shadow of death for centuries. Without Christ, the light of the world, both Jews and Gentiles, would all... You know, apart from faith in him, all people would be eternally sunk in darkness. You know, the, and there are many, many people in darkness out there in this world today. I mean, look how few we have in here. How few. Most people are so apathetic, aren't they? Or even agitated. And I mean, you can say almost any name, but you say the name Jesus Christ and you'll see these responses. You know, you'll either see adoration or apathy or agitation. And it's getting more and more, the agitation is taking over. Um... But people are in such darkness. They're in the darkness of their um, willful ignorance. They're in the darkness of idolatry. And I don't mean, you know, you have to worship, although there are millions and millions of people who worship idols, but 
they, they can make anything an idol. You know that. Um, their, their possessions can be their idols. Their, their own person can be their idol. They're in the darkness of superstition, many of them, in the darkness of man-made philosophies, in the darkness of ignorance, uh, lust, the darkness of worshiping the creation instead of the creator, etc., etc. The coming of the Lord Jesus was uh, going to be like a sunrise to the Greek and Roman world and to the many, many people of that day who did sit in darkness. And that darkness they were sitting in was the fault of the Jewish people, really, because the Jews were to have been the missionaries to the world and tell the people about the true God, but they had really pretty much become exclusive, you know, and wanted to keep him to themselves, but they had even drifted away. And so we find that at the time of Christ, there was just this remnant of true believers. Now, it's significant to notice that Simeon gave the very first public recognition of the Messiah. And he did it in the heart of Israel. He did it right there in Jerusalem and in the temple. And that which makes it very interesting is that in this very first public recognition of Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the Messiah, he includes a statement about Gentiles being among those whom Jesus would enlighten or save. Isn't that interesting? Very, very interesting. Simeon went on to say that Christ came not only as a messenger of light to the Gentiles, but also, he said, for the glory of God's chosen people, the Jews. And that's at the end of verse 32. The highest honor that has ever been given to Israel was the fact that she brought forth the Savior of the world. That is Israel's glory, that she produced the Savior of the world. So her destiny is tied into, was tied at that time into that little infant boy that Simeon was cradling in his arms. But how many knew that? Very, very few. Even uh, Luke tells us that even Joseph and, and Mary marveled over the things that they heard Simeon saying. That's in verse 33. All these things, can you imagine what's going on in their minds? They know this child is special, but how did this man know these things? This is incredible. So they're marveling over them. And then he sees Simeon ceased praising, and then he, he begins prophesying. And the first, he uses three images regarding Christ or about Christ in his prophetic statement. A stone, he talks about Christ as a stone and as, as a sign and as a sword. The first image that he used was that of a stone. Even though you don't find the word stone in his actual words, it's implied when he uses the word set, which, uh, let's see where it is. What verse is it? Uh, 35? 34. Okay, when he says, yeah, behold, this child is set. That word set means to be laid or to be put in place. So it's implied in the Greek that he's talking about a stone which is laid. Simeon here was prophesying that Jesus would be the cause for the fall and for the rising again of many in Israel. He was set. You see, the Lord Jesus was set as both a stepping stone and as a stumbling stone. Romans 9.32. Those who would receive him would rise with him. He would be a stepping stone. He would be a, a rock of salvation, right? The chief cornerstone. 
They would rise with him, actually literally rise with him one day. However, for those who would reject him, those who would not acknowledge him, he would be their stumbling stone. He would be the one um, that they would stumble over. He's called a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He is the reject to them. He is the rejected cornerstone, and they therefore would fall. They would fall under his curse, and they would be doomed to spending eternity apart from him. All right, so that's what he's referring to when he says that he will be set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. The second thing image that Simeon uses about the Lord is um, a sign. It says at the end of verse 34, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. A person does not have to really spend very long looking through the gospel accounts of the Lord Jesus' earthly life before he or she realizes how very accurate this part of Simeon's prophecy is. There has never, ever been anyone so spoken against as who? As Jesus Christ. As I said before, just go out there in the world and say his name and see how much you hear spoken against him. Just like the rock, which can either be climbed upon for salvation or stumbled over, the imagery of the sign carries this same twofold possibility. The sign can be adhered to just like you see a sign going along the road that says slow, caution, slow down, judgment ahead. You can either adhere the sign and therefore that can be a source of your salvation. You won't go over the cliff. Or you can ignore that sign. You can resist that sign. You can speak against that sign. Say, oh, I don't like the speed limit here. I disagree with it, so I'm not going to pay any attention to it. And therefore, that sign will become a stumbling stone for you, which causes um, you to even sometimes uh, not only fall, but to speak against that sign. I don't like that sign. I don't agree with that sign. I don't want to go 35 miles an hour. I want to go 65 miles an hour. And you speak against that sign. And even you can do it with uh, road rage, you know. You can become very angry and uh, get very opposed to the sign. And this takes us right into his third image where he speaks of a sword. Simeon's words regarding a sword in verse 35, which would pierce... There he's actually just turning and talking to Mary. Um, He said a sword would pierce her soul. Those were spoken for her ears alone, which is interesting because um, the exclusion of mentioning Joseph in this particular prophecy here may have been a hint, a clue ahead of time, that Joseph would not be around at the time of Christ's crucifixion. We know that Joseph was dead by the time the Lord Jesus was crucified. He's not mentioned. So this might be our first hint of the fact that the sword would pierce Mary's soul, but not Joseph's. Mary would experience, here's what Simeon is telling her, that she would experience great torture of soul as she witnessed this rejection of her son. You know, as people spoke more and more and more against him and then finally even um, took him to the cross and she would suffer agonizing Pain as she watched her firstborn, virgin-born, sinless, wonderful, dearly beloved son be crucified. It's interesting that you find the word also in his statement where it says, A sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. 
What does that mean? Somebody else is going to be pierced by a sword. The Lord was pierced through with a sword. You know, at the end when they they wanted to make sure he truly was dead. And I also got to thinking about how this could have even had a dub, double meaning to it because shortly after this, Herod gets word that the Christ child, the king of the Jews, has been born by the Magi, the wise men. And what does he do? He has a sword pierced through the souls of many mothers as they watch their little two-year-old baby boys and under and younger killed. So I think there's a lot of meaning there in that word also. As Simeon was speaking, just as he's in, in the actual speaking process of these words to Mary, God's providence, God's wisdom happened to ordain that another witness would also testify to the fact that the Messiah had actually arrived because it says in the scriptures in the mouth of how many witnesses two witnesses every word may be established that's in Deuteronomy 17:6 it's also in Matthew 18:16 so for anything to be established as true you have to have at least two witnesses now the second witness and by the way we had the temple shepherds right but according to Israel, they would have been their testimony would have been rejected. So God had to bring these other two witnesses, Simeon and Anna. The reason the temple shepherds' witness in court would have been rejected is because the Jews looked down on them with such despite that they would not even allow their testimony in a court of law. Isn't that sad when you think about their own patriarchs all being shepherds? But uh, I just read that this week. I would have put that in your notes last week, but I didn't know it. I just read it, and I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? No wonder he had to have Anna and Simeon as his two witnesses because the temple shepherds wouldn't have counted. They wouldn't have listened to them. They were, I mean, what would they know? They're just shepherds. All right, so the second witness was a very godly woman, and what was her name? Everybody? Anna. All right, let's look at Anna, and we'll finish up with Anna, verses 36 to 38. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years. Four, a score is 20, okay, in case you want to figure that out. I'll tell you in a minute what it is. Uh, she was a widow of fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Not much said about her, but what is said is magnificent. We know that Anna was old because here we are told that she was married for seven years and she was widowed for 84 years. Now, if you say, if you take that common age when women were married back then, let's say roughly that she was 13 when she was married. She was married for seven. She was widowed for 84. That makes her about 104 years old at the time of this narrative here. And we are told that she had given herself over completely to service for God. She served day and night in the temple. She, um, she fasted and she prayed and she worshipped. And apparently she had been doing this, wow, you know, for the entire 84 years of her widowhood. 
I mean, what an example of First uh, Timothy five five. If you read that passage about widows, just as Simeon, she too was also waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And notice, I'm just going to throw this in. I don't think it's in the notes, but she was of the tribe of Asher. That's um, in verse 36. Asher was one of the ten tribes of the northern um, section of Israel that had been carried off by the Assyrians even before Nebuchadnezzar came and took the southern tribes away, the, the land of the, the province of Judah, into captivity to Babylon. But Asher, you know, they always talk about the ten tribes of Israel that are lost, that they just disappeared and amalgamated and, and you never heard of them again. But that is not true. That isn't true, and this proves it. Because the Assyrians had taken away the ten tribes long before this, 700 years before what we see, and Anna still knew that she came from the tribe of Asher. This proves that those ten tribes were not lost and that there were still people from every one of the tribes, the 12 tribes at the time of Christ, and that there were still people from every one of the tribes, the 12 tribes at the time of Christ. So if you ever hear that the ten tribes were lost, it isn't true. What happened is when the northern kingdom got so pagan and they started worshiping all these false gods and they even set up another temple, I think it was up in Dan, the city of Dan, the godly people from those ten tribes couldn't stand it anymore, and so they migrated down into the southern tribe, uh, into the southern region of Judah, where people still at least worship the true God in the temple in Jerusalem. So the godly from each of the ten tribes were down in Judah, and they did not get carried off by Assyria. And Anna, therefore, we know, came from one of these godly families. All right, they just throw that in. She obviously heard Simeon's statements about the boy child, you know, that he was holding in his arms because in verse 38 it says, And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. The words in that instant speak of God's providence, his perfect timing. Anna's years of dedication to the Lord were rewarded with this providential blessing because she was in the right place at the right time to hear Simeon's prophetic words about the Christ child in his arms. The Lord's choicest blessings, you see, are granted to those who are dedicated. Don't expect the Lord's blessings if you're not faithful and dedicated. Both Simeon and Anna were faithful in being where God wanted them to be. Even though they were old. You know, you hear this a lot of times with elderly people giving their excuses about why they can't serve. Yet neither of them had retired from the Lord's service. You know, there's no such thing as retiring from the Lord's army, the Lord's service. They had not grown weary in well-doing. And if anybody could have it, it could have been these two really old people, both probably over a hundred. The spiritual highlight of their lives came in their old age because they did not fail to serve the Lord or worship in his house or minister to his people and trust in his promises. Aged believers, what we call senior saints, can still abound in acts of devotion, even though our bodies start to fail us, you know, and we can't do certain things physically anymore. We sure can stay alive and active spiritually, even to the day of our death, because there's one thing you can always do is pray. Well, after thanking the Lord, Anna, and by the way, her name is the same as Hannah, 
in the Old Testament, and it's a name which means grace. She began to speak of Jesus after she heard what Simeon said and she knew who the child was. It says that she went and she began to speak of Jesus to all those she personally knew were also looking for the promised Redeemer, the consolation of Israel. So just like the temple shepherds, Anna was an evangelist because her first response after seeing Jesus and hearing who he was was to tell others about him. Like like the temple shepherds and like Simeon and Anna, there were others in Jerusalem who had not departed from the truth and from their longing for the arrival of the Messiah. And this select group, don't you know, would be absolutely delighted and thrilled to hear that he had finally arrived and he was in their very midst. So she serves, Anna serves us as a godly example of widowhood not only of senior saints, but of widowhood, because she overcame the trials and the sorrows of her condition by realizing that God, you know, for whatever reason, God had taken her husband. She was not privileged to live with her husband very long, only seven years. Probably she was around 19 or 20 when her husband passed away. But she didn't sit in sorrow and um, spoil. She went on with her life realizing that she could then totally dedicate herself to the Lord. She was consistent in her spiritual life. She was a woman who lived in holiness and prayerfulness and and in self-denial. And obviously she was also a woman who fellowshiped with other believers because as soon as she heard about Jesus, you know, she went and she told she couldn't go and tell people who were looking for him if she hadn't been fellowshipping with them. So she had not forsaken forsaken the assembling of herself together with other believers. She didn't sit home in her house and watch soap operas and, and be depressed and have a perpetual pity party because of her situation. She was out there among God's people, ministering to them, and uh, she was privileged to give him this greatest news of all. As Anna faithfully waited and prayed for the first coming of the Lord, what do you think you and I should be doing? We should be doing exactly the same thing. We should today be faithfully praying and waiting for the Lord's second coming. You know, uh, their prayer back in those days was, Lord, may may I live to see the consolation of Israel. We could really say the same thing. May I live to see the consolation of Israel and of the world. May I live to see the rapture. Our prayer really should be, even so, come Lord Jesus, because you know we are prompt. Those who eagerly await His return are promised a crown of righteousness, and so that's at least one crown that we can all earn if we're just continually praying and waiting for His return. And what are we going to do with that crown? Gloat over it and say, "Oh, look what I earned!" Da 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 da. No, we're going to have something to cast at His feet in return, you know, for His wonder and His glory and His blessings on our lives. So we see then from the mouth of two witnesses, Simeon and Anna, speaking from the heart of the nation, not only Jerusalem, but right there in the temple came Israel's testimony as to the arrival of her long-awaited Messiah. And the response of these two godly people was the right response. It was one of adoration and worship. And we're going to see that we get the same right response from some more witnesses in our next week's lesson, except they are not going to be Jewish witnesses such as Simeon and Anna. 
they are Gentile witnesses who also adore and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's going to be an exciting lesson. I'm really looking forward to discussing the Magi, the adoration of the Magi. And then, of course, we'll have to look at the agitation of Herod the Great as well. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for life itself. We thank you for a Christian fellowship, which we have enjoyed here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have told us we can cast all our cares upon you because you do care for us. And I praise you, Lord, for these women assembled here this morning who evidence a hunger to draw closer to you through the study of your holy word. And I thank you, of course, for Jesus, whose name means Savior who, though he came down from heaven to not only be a savior, but also to be the lawgiver and the great prophet, the great teacher, our high priest and our judge, king of kings, yet rather than choosing a name to fit any one of those various other titles, he selected a name which would forever speak of help and deliverance and mercy and grace for a lost humanity, Jesus Savior, a name above every name, a name that speaks of a redeemer, a deliverer. It's the name he desires to be known by. Lord, I would pray that we might ask our own hearts what what each of us knows of this wonderful Son of God. Is he truly, truly Jesus, our Savior? I'm, I just pray, Lord, that no one here would be content to merely know him as a lawgiver or as a a great teacher or a great prophet or even as king of kings or great miracle worker, but that we would each, every one of us, know him experientially as our own savior, our own deliverer from the guilt and the power of sin. Lord, now I just ask that you would go with each woman, take her back safely to her place of destination and bring us all back together with our sisters in Christ who are missing Help them to get well or their children to get well so that we have a good attendance next week to share what you have further to teach us through your Holy Spirit using his word to tell us about your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.